What is up, podcast? Hey, it's Drew back again with another episode of Unscripted. Uh, today, we're sitting down with my buddy Ryan Wheatley. Uh, he is a Northeastern native, uh, born and raised in Maryland, if I remember correctly. Uh, and he is an adventure enthusiast and now cross-country racer. So him and I sit down and chit-chat about how he got into adventure riding, um, some of his wild antics, uh, taking a trip around the country on a bare-bones budget, uh, different bikes and whatnot he's been on. And uh, he's had quite a bit of success cross-country racing up in the Northeast. And uh, him and I get into some of the details about uh, what he's been doing with all that and uh, all kinds of other things. Uh, as usual, I want to thank everybody for listening to the show. Um, if you like what you're hearing, please share the show on social media. Tell your friends about it. And always, I want to hear from you guys, the listeners. Uh, so hit me with an email at motoadvr at gmail.com. Uh, and wherever you're at listening, turn it up, grab your beverage of choice, whatever it happens to be. And we hope you enjoy the show. Right. We are on the line with my buddy Ryan Wheatley. What is up, man? What's up, Drew? How are you doing? I'm uh, I'm about to open up this bottle of Warped Wing Whiskey Rebellion. Very Probably nice. my number number two favorite beer uh, as I'm watching you pedal away. <laughs> Got to get in some uh, exercise time on the stationary bike. <laughs> What's, uh, uh, I mean, before I get too lost here, do me a favor, hit everybody with your elevator pitch. Um, tell everybody, uh, you know, who you are, where you, what your day job is and, uh, what, what bikes are parked in the garage right now. Okay. Um, I'm Ryan Wheatley, better known as one wheel Wheatley on, uh, Instagram, which is how I met Drew originally. Um, I'm an engineer, but that's not my real interest. Love motorcycles. <laughs> uh, in the garage right now, it is completely filled with mostly junk, but a couple <laughs> good things. Got a uh, WR250F that I've been racing, and I just picked up a new 2023 YZ250FX for racing this upcoming season. Did, uh, did the Versys finally get retired? The, the Versys, which was my main love for many years, uh, moved on to greener pastures and is out in California high des, getting thrashed out there by an old co-worker of mine. Oh, that's I, I knew there was the, I think you and I talked about it moving on, so I didn't know exactly how all that stuff landed. So, well, Actually, uh, it's out in Phoenix now. I forgot he moved uh, a few wow. months back. It may wow. find its way back to me. We will see. <laughs> It's, it needs rebuilt, so so, so he's got to call the expert. I mean, it's on its second frame and fourth motor now. He uh, he did that. So, uh, how do you count second frame and fourth motor? I I don't know that it really counts as the same bike anymore. But uh, it was running, but essentially total when I gave it to him. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny stuff. T take me back to the beginning. I and mean, obviously, uh, we've talked for a long time, but that, there's a lot of holes in uh, your motorcycle journey this, and a story that I've not heard yet. So how did you get into bikes? When was that? How old were you? What were the bike? You know, hit me with the story. When I was 12 or 13, I asked my parents for a dirt bike. And because uh, the kids up the street had them 
and whatnot. And somehow I'd found out that my dad used to have motorcycles. So I was begging him for one. And my dad brought home a 1981 YZ80. Um, it was well thrashed. And we stripped it to the frame in the basement. And uh, he showed me how to rebuild it. My dad's a mechanic. So mm -hmm. he uh, walked me through it as a kid. I didn't pick up much that first time. But uh, huh. it was good. Uh, started learning to ride on that. It was way too gnarly for a first bike. Uh, the power band really hits on those little 80s. And I was yeah. really small until I was like 14, 15. I finally hit like a growth spurt. So the 80 was like a pretty intimidating to learn on because I could barely touch. And yeah. uh, I remember whiskey throttling it into a fence like the second time <laughs> I rode the thing. Classic story. Yeah. Um, and my younger sister, she's a year and a half younger than me, learned on it too. She was pretty intimidated after I whiskey throttled into that fence. It didn't bother me a whole lot. I wasn't hurt. I got up and kept riding. But she didn't seem to want to ride it after that. Yeah. So my dad picked up a little TTR 90. And uh, we had a blast on that for a little bit. And then uh, at that point, I pretty much was figuring out how to ride the YZ80 anyway. So moved back to riding that and uh, asked for a 125 for my 16th birthday and got a YZ125, used one. And we did the same thing, took it down the basement, framed it, rebuilt it. And uh, I got into motocross shortly after that. Huh. One of my friends. things I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a friend growing up, I was into skateboarding. I skated with him. And he was a couple years younger than me and had been racing minis. And, uh, you know, he talked me into going to the track with him. And uh, it was a good time. Also, my local riding spot kind of started getting shut down around then. Yeah. Used to be able to ride in a kind of sand pit area. Uh, like 10 minutes from my house. And uh, it was always cool to ride there. Police were cool with you. As long as you stayed in this one area and not the rest of it. Yeah. Um, what town was this in, by the way? Chesapeake City in Maryland, right along okay. the C&D Canal. Uh, but they decided it's going to be like a bird rescue sanctuary or something. I don't remember. <laughs> And they turned anything, it into walking, yeah. Yeah, anything necessary to uh, get the local vehicles out of there and stop harassing the neighbors. Yeah, it was always cool, though, growing up, because you just went there, and uh, everybody would go there, and you just rode in that area, and the cops would come, and um, a cruiser would roll up at sunset to close the, you know, tell you, like, you got to leave at sundown, and uh, they closed the gate behind you and lock it, and then they open it every morning. I, I mean, there's there's an argument to this day. I'm pretty firm on this, that uh, if you don't give the kids something to do, they'll find it and you may not like their choice. Yeah, it seems like a good arrangement because for the most part, it kept people contained. But hard to say because I was a kid. But in my yeah. view, everybody went there after that. Well, there wasn't much reason for anyone who wanted to go snipe trails to not go snipe them all along yeah. the rest of it. So which has been an issue there to this day. 
Yeah, it's we have a same situation local. Uh, it's kind of funny uh, as as I got into racing, I was thankful to have one of those places, and the exact same story took place in a much shorter period of time. Uh, some guys got their jeeps back there, and obviously some side by sides, and that was pretty much the end of it. It was just quads and dirt bikes for a while, and nobody cared, and then that's the way it shakes out. Yeah, just the way it goes, I guess, but. I could still ride like uh, the neighborhood I grew up in backs up a bunch of farmland. You know, I know the people on the farms. They were all kids around my age. Next neighborhood up had uh, like big one, two acre yards. And most of them had kids about my age with their bikes. So it was cool. Still could ride around some. Yeah. But after going to the track, it got pretty boring riding in people's backyards. Yeah. Pull that mic up just a hair. I can kind of hear you huffing on your nose, Sean. Some, uh, just a little. There you go. So, what was after the the one twenty five? Nothing. Um, for a while, I had the one twenty five through high school, and when I started college, after high school, um, it was more like I had to pay for things on my own, and. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It was really hard to uh, afford racing. Um, and after I, I smoked the motor in a mud race, uh, it overheated. And um, after rebuilding it, I really didn't have any money to uh, to ride anymore and lost most of my interest at the time. was more into skateboarding. Yeah. And uh, gas was super high then. And... Uh, you know, it was over four bucks a gallon, which seemed really high at the time. And I drove a pickup truck, just a 1500, but I could barely afford to cover insurance and gas on my pickup truck working, you know, a little part-time job. So, uh, I mean, I wouldn't have, uh, yeah. 2010, 20, 2009, 2010-ish, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like yeah. 2008 to, I graduated 2008 from high school. So, yeah. like 2008, 2010. I would go to the track and flag the races and they used to give you, uh, three free rides if you flagged a race. So my buddy and I just started doing that. Um, and then that way I could get free rides. Yeah. And what was it? Wednesdays, they would have $15 to ride after 4 PM on Wednesdays, I think. So I would try and, um, go like every other week one way or another 15 bucks for wednesday or burn a free ride to ride on a saturday or sunday yeah and uh got a lot solid. more seat time that way i mean i'm thinking about that right now um i hope i'm wrong but uh economic indicators are kind of saying the other way right now so <laughs> i'm like taking mental notes here like hey uh maybe we need to bring this back there you go so, uh, but yeah, after I, uh, rebuilt the motor the one time, that was, uh, about the end of my money, I put it together, rode it once and, uh, let it sit for about a year. A buddy hit me up to try going to, uh, Hatfield McCoy with him. Yeah. Went to start it. This is like a year later. Bike one start, uh, ended up being a ton of cooling in the motor. I was pretty oh. bummed on it, so I just rolled it on the side of the house and the uh, side of my parents' shed and left it there. And that was it. 
I was done with dirt bikes at that time. Of course, I didn't make it long. I wanted to buy a, a street bike um, That's, about a yeah, year later. Like, yeah, how did the resurrection happen then? So uh, I wanted a street bike in high school. Um, I wanted to get a sport bike. My parents weren't keen on it. I was like 16, had saved up my money, and got my motorcycle learner's permit. And they were totally cool with me riding because, like, my dad had uh, bikes in high school and stuff. But um, they were not about me having a super sport for my first bike, which uh, I was pretty pissed off about at the time. <laughs> but looking back, was, they were very reasonable. They were like, just yeah. buy something else to learn on. And uh, I didn't want to hear it. So I just never bought a street bike until I guess when I was uh, 20, 20 or 21. I can't remember. Spent 800 bucks on a 1981 Honda CX-500. Huh. And that thing was uh, was a blast. I thought it looked kind of cool. I wanted to make it into a cafe racer. When I got it, it had bags and a fairing. Uh, had a radio with a cassette player. Was this a silver wing? Or was no, this... no, this was the CX, but somebody put this on it. Okay, I was but like, like how uh, did they do that? <laughs> very tastefully done like not not hacked up bags they were good hard bags um but it was set up like a cruiser it, I mean, it looked like a bagger yeah which i thought were pretty lame at the time yeah looking back i would have loved it uh, <laughs> my dad tried telling me that like that bike was nice and set up well and that i should probably just enjoy it as is or just get something else because it was 800 bucks but you know i didn't want to hear it so uh, I enjoyed the fairing in the radio for about a week, just blasting. I had a uh, Metallica's Black Album on cassette. My buddy's dad gave it to me when he saw I had a cassette player. Yeah. So I uh, blared that everywhere for a week. And then I uh, ripped the bags off, ripped the fairing off, started cutting stuff down, you know, saws all part of the tail, and uh, just totally hacked it up. Took a yeah. pair of, uh, I was real cheap. Didn't want to uh, pay for like Clubman bars or clip-ons, so I took uh, one of my old pair of dirt bike bars. They were seven eighths. Removed the cross brace from them and mounted them upside down, so it had a drop. And I thought it was pretty slick with that, and uh, rode that bike nearly every day for huh. like two years. I was pretty addicted to that. I mean, you are that cafe racer dude. I mean, you were one of the people that grabbed those 80s Hondas and just hacked it up and turned it into that. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was bad. You know, they had the CV carbs on them, and uh, it ran fine, as is. But I went to rip the airbox out and put pod filters on it. And uh, my hubris was pretty big because I would have been 21, 22, you know, then. And uh, despite... You know, the wisdom being that it, it just doesn't work out. My father, who uh, used to build race motors, telling me that it's not going to work out, that I probably <laughs> shouldn't do that. I uh, I thought I knew better than everyone else and that I could totally figure out the jetting on it. And uh, I, I never did. It ran much worse after doing that. <laughs> but it looked cool. So uh, that's, that's funny. I, uh, a cousin of mine had a CX 500 for a while. And ironically, uh, I was toying with the idea of buying some junk 
to race in the adventure class next year. And I, I saw a CX 500 and was like, huh, I wonder if I can get long enough shocks to make this even remotely possible. So I was like, there's, there's a possibility here. Um, I've never been down the road on one, but obviously with it being that transverse V, uh, I think it would be fun to ride. Um, I kind of wish that somebody besides Moto Guzzi was still doing that these days, but that's really not what motorcycles are about anymore. They like to come up with an engine and, um, you know, kind of like use it as many different bikes and platforms as they can and squeeze every last penny out of it and use cheap ones. You know, everybody's got a 270 crank parallel twin now. Not that I don't like them, but everybody has one now. Yeah, there's just not much uh, uniqueness to it. But, yeah, I mean, I do really like 270 crank parallel twins. They're, they're pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, 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 I wax poetic about the Africa Twin, the T7, my bike. Uh, there are just so many of them. I mean, even the new Triumph 900, I like, that engine's good. Uh, I prefer my 865 air-cooled, but, yeah, they're they're fantastic, so... So the street bike after, or sorry, the, after the Honda or, you know, how does the Honda play into the next bike? Um, so I was enjoying that. Some of my other buddies were graduating from college, you know, after I've had this bike, like two years, um, one of them had been riding in college. I, I don't even know if he had his car with him mm. there. So he had, uh, FC Which 700. Sorry, I cut you off there. Which college was this, by the way? I went to the local community college, but he was down uh, at uh, University of Maryland. Okay, and I'm sorry, what was which bike did you say it was? In FZ 700. Okay. A pretty forgot uh, forgotten about bike. Um, (laughs) Yamaha made they made an FZ 750, and then that whole deal with uh when Harley had the tariffs on them. So they cut back to 700, but, uh, dabbling quite a bit in that eighties era, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that was all I could afford. So I learned a lot about them. (laughs) That's, it's really funny to me. Think about in the highlight you are, like I said, I know many and you are among them. The people that had all these eighties era bikes in that downturn, and everybody today is like, I don't understand the cafe racer thing. And I don't understand the scrambler thing. I'm like, yeah, uh, the downturn is still, you know, like alive today and could be again in the next decade. <laughs> yeah. I thought greasers were cool. I wanted to be a greaser. Had my hair <laughs> slicked back. I bought like a vintage leather jacket for like 20 bucks off of, uh, somebody on Craigslist that I still wear. <laughs> my buddy Ryan was a rocker. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought that was cool, so I wanted to be that, you know. How did you not land on a Triumph Thruxton? We will never know. Uh, yeah, well, they cost more than eight hundred dollars. Oh, that geez. was the. <laughs> Trust me, I want. I wanted the Thruxton. They're, they're approaching new prices these days, <laughs> like <laughs> approaching retail for what people paid for them. Yeah, the vintage Euro stuff was cool, but. Kind of before my time, my dad grew up yeah. with Japanese bikes. I mostly had exposure to Japanese bikes, and guys in the neighborhood had Harleys. Harleys didn't interest me, so that was uh, was still out. expensive back then. I, yeah, I yeah, they really, were really expensive. <laughs> exactly, and I like the Japanese design philosophies for 
their bikes. They were usually pretty simple to work on, generally pretty reliable. Um, plus, you know, if I'm buying a bike from the 80s in the 2010 time frame, they've been around a long time, so you know what the good designs are and what ones you want, what yeah. made it that far. So this, a bunch uh... of us bought 80s bikes, basically. Right. This also explains your electronic skills uh, by a lot, I might add. Yeah, well, that was a great frustration. I'm uh, not still not very strong with it, but, you know, <laughs> I'm learning my way to use that multimeter. Yeah. I was going to say, if the listeners are not aware, uh, we all love universal Japanese motorcycles, but the 80s were not well known for their really good electronic quality. So you're... Uh, your main bundle has been rusted and chewed through by squirrels and really wasn't that good from the factory to get from the get go. So you may be replacing a stator and a rectifier and well, just redo the whole thing. If you start, if you're buying a, a used one. Yeah, that's what uh, ended up putting me off that CX 500 actually. Um, since it's has that first motor like that in order to get the stator out, you have to drop the motor. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, Eventually, I had a bunch of electrical issues with it, and uh, I was just kind of over it at that point. Um, I still had that bike. At one point, I had an FCR 600 I bought for like $380 at an auction um, from the local bike shop. They got it in on trade and uh, or whatever. The guy wrote it in said he wanted a new one. They gave him some money for it. They rolled over to the auction. Yeah. They said he left with the battery. There was no battery in it, but they assured me that he wrote it in. And if you hmm. put a battery in, it'd be good. So I went home and took the battery. I bought it, won the auction for that, and bought a 84 VFR 500 yeah. for like 180 bucks. that was listed <laughs> as needed carb issues and had carbs in a box. That ended up being an absolute mire. Finally gave it away to my buddy about a month or two ago to let him uh, get to it. But uh, the FZR was good. Put a battery in it. It ran. Went out and did a bunch of uh, crazy illegal speeds on it since it was so much faster than my 80s bikes. And, uh, man, that thing was clapped out. You could tell it had been crashed like a bunch of times. And <laughs> the plastics were like spray painted and all broken off. When I got it, I remember going out with my buddy. He had bought a SV650. We went out riding the day I think the day after I got it, took it home, put a battery in it. It ran. And I was like, let's go ride, you know? And, um, speedo didn't work on it, but I don't know. I went and I topped it out to go see. <laughs> it felt awesome. And then, uh, I went back and was working on it the next day. And, uh, I went to take the forks off because I was going to rebuild them because they were blown. And, uh, the bolts for the triple clamp was just, like completely loose. Like yeah. I put the Allen key in to loosen it, you know, and it just spins. Yeah. Like, and I just take my finger and I can undo it. <laughs> I remember being like, I can't believe I didn't die on this thing. Yeah. That was uh ballsy in a way. Um, but, uh, we fixed it up and, uh, gave it, my buddy wanted it for his first bike when he graduated college. So me and another guy sweet. cleaned it up. Um, We'd found plastics for it and sanded it and painted it and made it nice, you know, rebuilt the suspension on it. Did everything that didn't really cost money to try and make it nice. 
the radiator was straight water. I remember when I got it and had a <laughs> bunch of rust in it. Took forever to flush. Clutch was burnt out. It had been well thrashed. Yeah. But uh, we fixed it up, and my buddy had that as his bike. I had my CX, and um, the other buddy still had his FZ700, and we decided we are going to ride around the country. And uh, I started having all those electrical problems on the CX, and uh, I guess like a month before we were going to go was when I was going to have to drop the motor and yeah. start chasing the stator issue. So uh, I went out and bought that Versys. Decided I wanted a new bike. So, so, so you um, did you? You said you sold the six, the CX five hundred, or you just went out and bought the Versys? No, I just went out and bought the Versys. Yeah. And um, this is an this I, is an epic bike, so you kind of need to introduce it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I, I decided I wanted to spend six grand. Was my limit. And I was looking at used bikes, and I wanted to find a Fireblade, because that's what I really wanted in high school. I thought they were sweet. I was trying to find a Fireblade. Um, was going around looking at them. Went in a local dealership to see what they had. And saw the Versys. It intrigued me. Um, I didn't really know what an adventure bike was at that time was not well versed in what the current things were. I this saw is ironic it. to me after yeah. the fact. Go on. <laughs> I saw it, thought it looked interesting. Thought it was kind of ugly, but it looked like a supermoto. And I thought supermotos were sweet because they, you know, they're fun. They do wheelies. Um, I was pretty intrigued by it. They had a used one there. And they wanted like 6500 for it. And... I went home, looked them up. I was pretty interested in them. They had 17-inch wheels, which was something I wanted, coming from uh, the 80s bikes with weird size wheels, <laughs> having 16-inch front and 18-inch rear, not being able to get good tires. So yeah, I wanted 17s. Weird. So yeah, it had you know standard sizes like a 120 front, 160 rear. It had dual disc front brake, had inverted forks that were adjustable. So I thought this seems like pretty along the lines of what I want. A little underpowered with the parallel twin. Yeah. But all the reviews said it was torquey and fun and whatnot. So uh, I looked around, found another dealership in Maryland that had one new left over. So I was looking at a 2012, I think. And this would have been in 2014. That sounds about right. So it was the exact same one as the used one, the yellow and all. And uh, they were selling it to me for six grand out the door. So I went and bought it. And uh, I guess like a week or two later, rode it around the country. And uh, with my buddies, with that FZR. And he didn't have that FC700 anymore. He bought an R1, a used R1. It's like a 03. Thing was an absolute electrical nightmare. (laughs) Um, and we rode around the country fixing that R1 electrical issues pretty much every day, spend about two weeks. Um, a lot of good adventures doing that, just camp the whole time. Um, I don't think we got a hotel till we were in Vegas. Wow. And then, uh, 
Yeah, and stayed in San Francisco. It was where my buddy with the R1 was staying. Was his plan uh, to go to school there. And um, so he stayed when we got there. And was just going to live in San Fran. And uh, get his master's. And me and my other buddy rode back across the country. And it was a good time. See, you just stockpiled a bunch of cash and lived like homeless people that could afford gas for a month uh no we did it in 16 days i think (laughs) we uh grinding grinding across the middle part of the country you know this flyover states we flew through them yeah it was a (laughs) it was a good time we uh we rode down the appalachians um you know skyline drive uh blue ridge parkway and then uh, do Tale of the Dragon and the roads around that area. And then pretty much just went on I-40 across the country. Um, wow. And we just rode pinned all day. We just do like 12 hours of riding a day. And I mean, literally, I would just max out the Verses inside the slowest bike. And um, there was like no traffic once you left the East Coast. So uh, very illegal. But it was cool. It was fun. You know, I was, I, we were living the fast life there. The police didn't seem to pull you over. They just saw you were going over a hundred and didn't care or <laughs> didn't do anything or I, I don't know. But, uh, we were good until went out, went to the Grand Canyon, made a detour for that. And, uh, we just, we wouldn't pay for campsites. We would just boondock wherever, just have one tent we bought from Kmart for like 20 bucks (laughs) big eight person tent it was gigantic weighed like 40 pounds strapped across my bike it was ridiculous that was was a horrible idea (laughs) yeah we were broke we didn't have money this pretty much all went right to a credit card yeah uh you know we didn't have much cash but we did it real cheap i mean it probably cost me fifteen hundred dollars this trip i mean that's maybe that's yeah, that's saying something. Think about that. 16 days divided by 1500 bucks. Like, that's... It pretty much went to gas, and we ate cheap on the East Coast. You know, we eat at Waffle House. Eat at whatever little local place you can. We yeah. stayed away from anything bougie. Uh, we didn't go in any cities or anything until we got out. Stayed at Vegas. Um, I'd never been around the country. Either yeah. they, I don't think so. We spent a night in Vegas. Oh, well, I guess after, I think when we left the Grand Canyon, we did get pulled over. I went through a speed <laughs> trap, and uh, I rolled on, and uh, I see the police pull out, and I'm like, eh, they'll hopefully give up. <laughs> and uh, they, they didn't. They caught up. You know, I rolled off, but uh, we, we got some tickets. They were, they were cool once... Uh, well, pretty much once they saw we were white. Wow. <laughs> yeah, they were like, oh, they're like, don't you know? They got out, and we're like, shit, you know? I tried to get my buddies to leave me. They wouldn't leave me. I tried to tell yeah. them to just go on ahead. Because I, I blow by them, and you see a sign a couple mi- like a mile up ahead that says, like, uh, no gas for 70 miles. Yeah. So there's, like, no exits. We're just in the middle of the desert. And I'm like, well... When the Versys is maxed out, it can only go about 100 miles before it runs out of gas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah, I pretty much knew that that was uh, 
if they wanted to speed up, they were going to catch me because the Versys also only does like a 112 or something. Right. That's so, kind of funny because it's really not that much more than my Scrambler does. <laughs> no, it's not fast at all. <laughs> no. But, you know, you just go off the assumption for the most part. Nobody knows it. But, uh, yeah, they, they pulled us over and they go, oh, don't you boys know? County jail's back that way, pulling over his shoulder. <laughs> and uh, we thought we were going to jail for sure. But uh, yeah. we took our helmets off and they were like, oh, we thought you boys were Mexicans. Running. Oh my God. They thought they thought we were running from the border or whatever. And uh, then the tune changed. They seemed pretty chill about it. And they were like, you know, they asked me about running. I said, well, when they pulled out, they didn't hit their lights. So I said, you oh. didn't have your lights on. You're not, you know, I'm not fleeing. I pulled over when you hit your lights, when they called up to me like five minutes later. But, and, uh, you know, they said, hey, okay, you know. And they were like, your other two buddies are smart. They rolled off when they saw us, but they had me going, I forget, 99 or no, yeah. 107. My other two and buddies were going 99, so it was below the threshold. But um, I think they gave us all tickets for, they marked me down. I know that, so I didn't wow. have to go to jail. And uh, they gave us tickets and told us that uh, we could take like an online class and it would dismiss them. If you Are paid you like serious? 200 bucks. Yep. No points, no ticket wow. out of this, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Felt like I was on top of the world. Got out of yeah, everything. I'm, I'm amazed because I got, I got pop. 2020. Yeah. It was the first time I had been out much. No, it was 2021. I think and it doesn't matter. Anyway, I was headed to Kentucky um, and on a stretch cause I have a route specifically set up to get from my house to Kentucky without going on any main roads, but there are a couple state routes and that was it is there was a cop hiding behind a state cop hiding behind a barn and there was a big solar farm construction place or whatever it was. I think I was doing, I'm sure I was doing 70 to 55, but when I saw him and that scrambler rolls off in a hurry, I don't know what it was, 10 over or whatever it was, but it's still just hilarious to me. Like, what, <laughs> what are you bugging me? But I'm sure that cost me $150. There's no question about it. And it's like, are you serious, dude? We are in BFE, Ohio. Like there's nothing out here, but you, me and these cows, why are you bothering me? <laughs> but I think the, they, they had the state police out there because of all the construction trucks, the dump trucks going back and forth. But yeah. So for you to, to get a deal on a class, I'm like, yeah, I would have been happy to take that. That's funny. Yeah. That's a good deal. Not, uh, I guess. Oh, before that, when we were crossing the desert, my buddy's R1 blew up. The stator came loose. Yeah. And, uh, broke the case. So actually I'll correct myself there. So, yeah, the motor let go, the stator came loose, and I believe the crank walked. And we didn't know it at the mm. time. Saw some oil come out of it. It's like 1 a.m. We did a lot of our riding at night. It's nice snowing out there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, saw oil under it. We were on uh, I-40 out there in the middle of nowhere. Uh, just left Texas and crossed into New Mexico somewhere. And, uh, you know, another one of those, like, we're 50 miles away from the next gas station. And it's like 1 a.m., we're on the side of the highway, oil coming out of the bike, we don't know what's up. And uh, a truck, um, a trucker pulled over for us. 
Yeah. He was, uh, he had like a dually and was towing a box trailer. And um, he had saw us on the side of the road and saw me laying down looking under the bike trying to figure out what's up with it at that time. And swung back around and came and got us. Damn. Yeah. And um, he took us to all the way to Albuquerque, which was like Whoa. 500 miles or whatever from there. It was far. Um, we just asked if he could take us to like the next town that would have a motorcycle shop. And we'd never been to New Mexico. We had no idea how barren it is. Yeah. And uh, honestly, if he didn't stop, I don't think we were ever going to make it to the gas station. Because <laughs> yeah. we loaded up my buddy's bike and we went to the gas station. We said, hey, can we go there where we might have cell service and we'll figure it out. And we followed him. And of course, you know, the truck's driving slow. And uh, me and my buddy barely made it to that gas station. Despite, you know, we're going like 55 now. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, R1, we got him, he left us at, uh, we had him drop us off in Albuquerque near a dealership, and we set up across the street in the Wendy's parking lot, I started stripping it down, we pulled the stator off, checked it out, we had a spare stator, because of the amount of electrical issues that had happened on that bike, <laughs> so we disturbing. installed a stator in a Wendy's parking <laughs> lot, yeah, and uh, tried to figure out what was up with it, had limited tools i couldn't pull the spark plugs so um i rolled it over to the dealership and asked them to pull it for me to check and uh they came back out after like five minutes and we're just like yeah they're like here's spark plug one and here's spark plug two they're like we didn't bother pulling the other two you could just see they were smashed oh so we left the r1 there we gave them they gave us 500 bucks for it and bought an uh bought an fz09 <laughs> he just straight up bought a new bike yeah yeah i co-signed for him oh my god just That's... we bought it it was actually used fz09s had only been out for like two months at that point yeah they're what i wanted but i couldn't find a used one that's what i really yeah. wanted instead of the verses at the time but um they had a used one they said you know there's a wealthy guy in the area who buys anything that comes out keeps it for a few months usually and trades it so they had a used FC09 that had like 300 miles on it or something. And uh, we bought that. That's, that's, yep, my that's buddy really bought funny it. to me. I signed for it and we, we took it and kept on, continued the trip. That's, as, as an aside, um, when I bought the Scrambler, that's the same story. Uh, in 2016, I bought a 2013 Scrambler. The guy said the same thing. They got some guy that's got like 50 bikes, and he just rotates through them. And so they're selling that one for him. So that's, that's ironic that we're having this story that way. So continue yeah. with the uh, with this adventure of things that are I wish I wish were well-documented in photos at this point. <laughs> yeah. So, uh Shout out to Bobby J's Yamaha there. That's who it was we bought it from. They're a pretty famous yeah. uh, dealer ran by an ex-pro racer. Because they really could have, uh, I mean, they, they knew we needed to buy the bike. And they did not jack up the price or anything for us. That and is they awesome. were willing to give us 500 for that uh, pr pretty much hunk of scrap R1 at that point. So, not that that's Somebody raced great, that bike but... after that. <laughs> yeah, probably. So, uh. <laughs> Yeah, we it was good. After that, the trip was uh, less random, I guess. You know, we went in, 
went out, went out to LA. Uh, we were behind schedule because we spent three days in Albuquerque. Uh, that was not planned for. So my one buddy did split up to make it up to school in time. Um, cause he had a hostel reserved. He was going to stay at for a couple weeks till he could find housing. And, uh, so he split me and my other buddy stayed like somewhere just outside LA rode around there up through Malibu and rode up the coast, uh, route one and met up with him up in San Francisco, uh, like two days later, hung out in San Francisco for a couple of days. Uh, by that point, now that I'd been on the verses for like two, three weeks or whatever, I'd learned how to wheelie it. <laughs> I was doing wheelies everywhere. So we got pulled over by a bike cop in San Francisco. So I was riding a wheelie down the street and, uh, you know, I don't know where I am. This is before I didn't have a smartphone or anything. We were just living life, you know, no directions, yeah. no smartphones, just going off of a sense of direction and adventure and whatever we heard. But, um, yeah, my buddy asked, he had to go to do something about class. So us two were riding around. I'm riding a wheelie for a couple blocks through San Francisco. <laughs> Apparently I went right past the police station. <laughs> this Harley cop was pulling out. He was starting a shift, I guess. And he was pissed. Yeah. Man, he was yelling at us about how stupid are we and whatnot. And <laughs> you know, I had the deer in the headlight looks. I'm just like, oh. you know, he's yelling at me. I'm like, I don't I don't understand. And uh he's like, How dumb do you have to be to wheelie right in front of a cop, right past the whole police station? And you know, I was like, ah, oh, I don't know where I'm going. I asked him if he could uh give me directions to get to the wharf. And uh, he was pissed. He just, he yelled at us about how our bikes weren't legal. Cause as soon as I got the verses, they talked to me and I sawzalled off that big tail thing, you know? Yeah. And zip tied my plate up there. <laughs> <laughs> and my buddies played on the FCR. We have it angled, you know, and whatnot. And he's, you know, he's yelling at us and we're like, ah, well they passed Maryland inspection. So, you know, our state says it's cool. Even though they totally didn't, it. we we did all that after they passed inspection. But I'm just uh, I'm just trying to imagine this like harsh east versus west, like. <laughs> but yeah, he was pissed off. He yelled at us for like five minutes straight, and then I asked him for directions. He didn't say a word. Got on the Harley and just took off, squealing wheel, burning rubber, just got off. Wow! Because uh, I didn't have insurance, I didn't have registration with me, I didn't have any of my paperwork because um. After getting pulled over back in Arizona, I had to get it all out from under my seat, which yeah. we didn't have like real luggage or anything. I bought like a pair of throwover saddlebags for 20 bucks <laughs> off of Craigslist and uh, <laughs> had an old camping backpack, like a rigid hiking backpack. Yeah. That, uh, I would put the giant Kmart tent through the arms because the Kmart tents like sticks out like four feet. So I put it through the arms of the backpack and bungee corded onto the passenger seat. And uh, after dealing with having to get all that out and take all that stuff off, um, I moved it to the backpack. And when we got to the hostel, I dropped it there. So I had no, I had literally no paperwork, no anything to show that I was even remotely legal on the bike. And he was pretty pissed off about that. It's, but he it's just let it go. Man. They just let it go. Wow. It was all good. We got in quite a few things, you know, during that trip. And every time they just let it go, got busted. You know, we 
we're drinking 40s and camping under a <laughs> under an awning in a park because it's pouring rain in Virginia. And the cop felt bad for us when, you know, he told us, like, we got to leave. We got to get a hotel. And we told him, like, mister, we can't afford to pay for no hotel. <laughs> like, that's not in our budget. <laughs> and uh, he took us to his other buddy, a retired police officer, let us stay in his camper. Had a camper. Wow. Yeah. Had, like, one of those, you know, uh, fifth wheel pull behinds. Yeah. He had it set up at his house. And, yeah, he let us camp there. It was great. You know, got to meet a lot of cool people just. Stuff like that. The cops were always cool. Eventually, I did get it's, a ticket, but I guess it was bound to happen. They got me in Utah, I think. Somewhere after, no, Nevada. After it, Reno. <laughs> I mean, it. it's not like, I mean, it, it would be much different if we had someone on the show that was, you know, talking about going across country in the 50s and the 60s and whatnot. That would be very different. But in today's context... That was a very different time. Like the downturn, frankly, was so awful for police departments and all that other stuff and homeless and all kinds of other things that it was like they didn't have the money to be harassing everybody left, right and center and whatnot. And it was like I said, it was a much very different time, um, which, like I said, I bring this up because I'm like, we could could maybe again, I hope I'm wrong, be looking at that kind of thing again. But yeah, it's it is interesting to look at that in context after where we were then at that time and how rough 2008 2009 was. I was working for the cable company at the time. I worked in some rough, rough neighborhoods. If I go back to those neighborhoods today, those houses don't even exist anymore. They are empty field. They're gone. So, I mean, it was, it was an interesting time for people that may or may not remember that. Yeah. I think a big part of it was most of the interactions with, uh, with police during that would have been during interstates. So you get like the state cops and I've always found the, the state police tend to be much more professional than, uh, some of the, you know, little towns, at least yeah. over here, like in Maryland, Delaware, like in Delaware, live on the border, growing up, moving back and forth between them. Well, once I was old enough to get my own place, I've pretty much been <laughs> back and forth between Delaware and Maryland and um, always lived, uh, you know, like a couple miles from Delaware. But in Delaware, every little town has its own police department. And uh, that you get the whole getting every little infraction, getting speeding tickets for one mile an hour over the speed limit type deal, you know. That's I'm talking, funny. you got towns where there's like 20 houses and they have their own police department. Now it's just like two guys or whatever, but I, I don't know. I guess they got to justify their existence there. So That's, if you're local, you know, like any little yeah. town, 100%, like you got a speed trap going on there. And by town, I mean like a crossroad with a couple of <laughs> the village. <laughs> yeah. That that's really ironic cuz there really is only one place in Dayton that I know for sure. Like if you go through Oakwood, do not speed. But generally speaking, yeah, in Ohio, if the state police pull you over, you're getting a ticket. But most of the local cops don't have a lot of time to mess with you. So, with exception of Oakwood for the most part here in this part of Ohio, you you kind of get away with it. Cincinnati's a whole other discussion and I'm not qualified to talk about that. But yeah. <laughs> If a state cop catches you in Ohio, you're getting a ticket. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I had a really good run of luck, so I've always been surprised the few times I get tickets. Like, it just became, it sounds like I got pulled over a lot, which I feel like <laughs> it's not, it's not entirely true. 
but uh, they just always kind of let me go. Eventually, I got a ticket for lane splitting near home. You know, had to ride <laughs> up like US uh, 13, used to work uh, right off of there. And it would always back up. It's like four lanes each direction. And I'd just filter up to the front all the time. I mean, I did it every day yeah. for, for years. And eventually, I got pulled over. And he gave me a ticket. I was kind of bewildered that I actually got a ticket. It's impressive he even caught you in traffic that was that thick. Well, those cars were pissed. They parted like they parted like the sea man for him. Just whoop, everybody pulled over <laughs> and let him go up. And it was a it was a red light at a yeah big old intersection, you know, and uh, right next to my work too. So I was definitely not going to perform any more illegal maneuvers. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. The drivers do not, they don't like it. They don't ever do anything risky. Like I, I don't feel like my life's in danger or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, I saw how they felt when the cop flipped on his lights and they all moved for him. That was the first, I'll just say that's <laughs> happened a lot on interstates, you know, you lane split. Right. And uh, I do it all over the, you know, the East coast, whatever it backs up like I 81 when I used to go do road trips all the time. It would rough. always back up. Yeah. Yeah. I've done that one. That one sucks. So when there's an accident there, it gets way backed up. And uh, yeah. yeah, I'd cruise along. And like, you might go past the cop car. And if I had mirrors, then I could look in them. But I usually don't even have mirrors on the verses <laughs> at that point. Those were long gone. But from my buddies behind me, they say the cop flips the light at you. But like, nobody moves. Nobody does anything. I just yeah. keep on keeping on. Yeah. I'm not reckless, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing 50 between stopped cars, but right. I, I think that's part of it. I feel like I'm generally pretty reasonable despite talking that's, about going across the country over a hundred the whole time, but we were really, like, you know, at night, no cars around, I'm not doing it in traffic. Yeah. It was just you and the deer at that point. It's funny you brought up the lane splitting thing. Uh, you know, we're, 45 46 episodes into this adventure and i don't know how much i've spent talking about it i'm sure i've mentioned it before but yeah i mean it's i've been going across the construction zone for a decade in the city now so when a deal came up on that wr250r i took it and part of it was because i enjoy commuting on the dual sport because it's so skinny that i can get just about anywhere and if people really lose their mind and start acting dumb because they do that here they'll they'll pull out into the emergency lane to you know block you from going by and all kinds of stuff i'm like i'll run the wr in, into the median i don't care <laughs> uh, like, whatever exactly uh, it's uh. that lane splitting i just I, I mean obviously you've been to california it's a thing that even among motorcyclists, it amazes me how polarizing it is that a lot of people are like, oh, I never name split. I'm like, dude, there's just so many places where like traffic is completely stopped. There's just no reason for me to wait. I fit. Why, why are yeah. we waiting? I remember the first time I did it, I had that um, FCR 600. We just fixed it up and I was taking it to my buddy. He was going to school uh, up in Massachusetts at the time for his master's and I was going to go deliver it to him. Um, so I take a mega bus back home. So like after work, I had ridden it to work and after work I left on a Friday to go up and it's, I don't remember it, it was hot out. So it had to have been like summer or something. And it's crazy backed up on 95 as you would expect. And, uh, I wanted to lane split, but I was nervous. I'd never done it. Traffic's yeah. like just stop and go on the interstate for as far as you can see. And uh, 
another motorcycle rode by guy from one of the local clubs on a sport bike, you know, with the chrome, uh, like German looking lid. I don't know what those <laughs> are called. You don't know talk about yeah. man. He rides up. like the war helmets. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. wearing a vest on a sport bike. Yeah, he's one of those, but like he was just cruising on by and he comes up and pulled up next to me and he just goes, just follow me, man. Yeah. I was like kind of poking over looking at it, and he's like, just follow me. And I started following him. That's and awesome. we lane split from Wilmington, Delaware, up to Philly. And then it uh, opened up north of Philly. And, uh, yeah, it was the first time. Then I was comfortable, and I went on. And not long after that, I ended up going out to California for a work trip and rented a bike out there and got to see what it could be like. Yeah. Then I ended up going out to California for a couple years in a row, take, like, vacations out there, visit buddies, have quite a few friends. So always ride out there. And uh, you see that, you see what it's like in other countries, like when I'm in Southeast Asia and like, just, I can't, you can't go back. I can't stop after that. <laughs> that's, that's so relevant. Uh, I think that's funny. Cause that's it is my first experience was on the islands on a cruise. Um, and locally it is, it's intimidating because that's it. Does the local drivers don't know what to expect and, and they're pissed because it's, you know, some kind of unfairness that you are, you know, beating yourself to death in the elements and they're in their comfortable car, but they're mad that you got in front of them. Like you could buy a bike too, if you really wanted to get somewhere. Um, but when you get involved in a place where it's culturally acceptable, it's like, no, it's easier. It's safer. And and on the islands, people were like super polite about it. Like, no, I'm in my car. Go ahead. Like it was, it's crazy on the East coast. Like people are like, screw you. It's my turn. Yeah. The territorialness is uh, very high, especially on the East Coast. Yeah, but uh, it's bad. Yeah, I, I never had too many issues doing it. Uh, like near Atlanta, the drivers seem pretty aggressive. Yeah, They'll pinch over. Usually, like um, most of the time, if I'm doing it anywhere other than like when I said you know I I lived right off of uh or worked right off of US 13, um, you know it's usually the highway and uh, that's means I'm probably on a road trip when I'm in these places like Atlanta. So I usually have bags yeah. and um, I just always let them move over and just kind of called their bluff. Like, do you want my bags to uh, drag down your nice shiny vehicle? And uh, so far the answer's always been no. When they get close, they always scoot back over and tone it down. <laughs> That's interesting. So you get a random beep every now and then. Now, my buddies, when they go with me, I tend to be like the leader. They say it's worse the further back they are. And oh, depending yeah. on how many of us, you know, four or fifth, they're like the fourth guy. Uh, they're like, he gets a lot more shit. I don't know. because I'm always the first guy. And if there's no one with you, they usually don't even notice that you're doing it till after you pass them. They're yep. oblivious. So, no, that's. That's like adventure riding and when dogs run out into the trail. It's it's always the second, third, fourth bike. They're going to be victim of being hit by a dog. The first guy usually gets away with it. It's my loud-ass scrambler that wakes them up off the porch, and then they come darting out into the road. Exactly. So so I'm trying to figure out, so what's what's the gap between this giant national trip and and you deciding to come down to Kentucky for the, for the first time? Red River Scramble meetup. That was probably two years later or so. Yeah. I had the Versys. Originally, I planned on getting rid of it after that trip. 
I was like, I'll own it for like a month. And um, used versus were selling for what I paid for it or more at that dealership, apparently. Wow. <laughs> so um, I was like, hey, I can just get rid of it. And I was hoping to pick up an FC09. Um, but after riding it, I really kind of fell in love with it. <laughs> and uh, just decided to keep it. I was hesitant on what to do with it. But, I mean, I was just riding it every day. Really loved it. Uh, I did loop out a wheelie. That partially was one of the reasons I kept it, because it was no longer pristine. That was after I owned it for, like, two months. Looped out a wheelie. Um, did you chuck it down the road when you did that? Yeah, yeah, I was going, like, 60. <laughs> I was, I gotten quite good at riding balance pulley and feathering the brake and being able to shift through the gears doing it and whatnot. And uh, I didn't give it enough rear brake one time and uh, did my first scrape. And then shortly oh. after that, it walked side to side and uh, lost it. Oh. I mean, it was fine. It just, you know. I think I need to put a stator in because I busted that case. Yeah. Stator, you know, got grounded out. But, um, yeah, it wasn't for bad. For the benefit of the listeners, uh, this is the guy I talked to when I was first trying to learn how to do wheelies. So, <laughs> appropriately so, I was like, Ryan, I'm, tr- I'm having struggle with this thing here. Can you help me out? <laughs> yeah, I bought that bike and I just went to town learning wheelies. Go to the local uh, high school parking lot after it closed and just do them or down you know my buddy lived out in farmland this little like two mile it's probably not even two miles it's less than that little stretch of road between two other roads there's nothing there but one farm and we it's dead straight and we just go there and practice until i learned how to do them i can't afford clutches man that's really what it comes down (laughs) to (laughs) once you learn how to do it right you don't really go through the clutches yeah but I remember I smoked one because I sat there and I practiced for like an hour and a half straight. And I missed the point when it ran out of free play in it <laughs> until <laughs> I didn't notice till the clutch is slipping quite a bit, I guess. Yeah. I'm like, man, uh, the bike seems down on power. And uh, <laughs> then I was like, oh, but I let it cool. Clutch was fine. So, sort of. I replaced it. But, uh, you know, it was functional. I could ride the bike. Yeah. But, uh after that, I think that was the only one I really burned out from wheelies. Burned out a lot off-road. Yeah. But, uh... Is it, I mean, is that the next phase? Uh, obviously, you've yeah. been in off-road a while before you and I met. Yeah, so, like, um, on my way home from work, because I was riding it every day, I guess after that trip, I guess after that trip, I never drove again. I did that, uh, trip around the country, and, uh, I had a car, and I just never drove it. I got back. And just kept riding the bike every single day. And um, then, you know, the battery died and I didn't think about it. And I didn't notice because I didn't try and start the car until like five months later, you know, in like January, February. And uh, I, I do I just, know this story. <laughs> yeah. So I just didn't drive again and uh, became riding around year round. But on my, uh, it's about 25 miles to work. And I could choose to ride along the C&D canal. And there's gravel along there. And, um, I was having fun riding along the gravel, something different, peaceful, avoid the traffic. Yeah. Seven, seven to nine miles or so stretch of it. Continuous. I get to ride. Um, so I would always ride it on the way home and maybe 50% of the mornings I would go and do it. Um, and after work, I started exploring some of the old trails, poke around, see what's still there. 
and this was all on street tires. So like nothing, <laughs> like I was going pretty slow cause I was, you know, you crash it in the mud and stuff a lot, you know, I get stuck back in crap because I'm on street tires and whatnot. And, uh, it, at some point I learned about adventure bikes and honestly, I thought most of the people doing it were like pretty hokey. Like, uh, I guess I had gotten a smartphone and got Instagram. So that's how I yeah. kind of discovered this and, um, just kind of started poking around on it. Mostly me and my buddies used to send pictures of us on dirt roads in our group chat is a joke yeah. and just make fun of adventure riders. <laughs> like, Oh, yeah. look at us, man, riding this gnarly gravel, you know, on our street bikes and super sports <laughs> and stuff. And we just like increasingly kept upping it because like, it's what we did. We would go ride and go camp and we would just take them into the woods Yeah, to go find camp spots. So, um, I saw something about the Pine Barren 500, which was a adventure ride in Jersey. Yeah. And I thought that was real interesting. I wanted to do that. So um, I was saw about it just after it happened. I missed it. Found out about it like a week before it was going to happen. So I couldn't do it that year. And I said, well, I want to do it next year. It seems interesting. In the meantime, I bought a Twin Star, Honda Twin Star, 1981 um, uh, CM200T. Huh. It's the predecessor to the Rebel. It's like a Honda no Rebel. Yeah. yeah. So it was in between the CB and the Rebel, they made a CM. And um, yeah, it looks like a Honda Rebel, basically. But 200, sure. parallel twin. Um. I bought it for like, I don't remember, 200 bucks or something. And uh, it had been sitting under a tree for years, sprayed out the carb, it ran. And uh, I put um, knobbies on it from like a 80cc motocross bike. Yeah. Yeah, Dunlap MX32s, I think. Yeah, goofy tire sizes paid off in that case. Yeah, right. So uh put those on it, and I used it as like a pit bike. And... um <laughs> I taught my buddies how to ride on it, and we got more of them in. My best friend who had swore he was never into bikes. He grew up riding some quads and stuff. He yeah. said he didn't want no part in street bikes until I had that thing. He, he said, uh, you know, he wanted to start playing around in the backyard with it. Not long after, he went out and bought a, like, showroom condition one he found off Craigslist. That's for, like, awesome. a grand. And went on to have a bunch of bikes and adventure ride with me and stuff. But, um... I had that, and I was curious about, uh, I saw Dirty Dabber Stool Sport in Lockhaven, yeah. PA. Somehow I'd found out about that. I think I saw something through Instagram. Somebody had posted about it that I followed. I think maybe Steve Camrad, actually. What's What city is that in? Lockhaven, PA. Okay, that's relevant because that, that event's still going on, and I still want to do it yes, someday. Yes, it is. Great event yeah. hosted by great people. Uh, I stay in contact with them. Yeah. But um, I took that twin star with the knobbies because I didn't know, like I had no reference point. I'd only ever ridden moto. So I had no idea how gnarly anything was. And I didn't want to destroy my Versys since it was my, uh, you know, primary vehicle. Yeah. So uh, I got a friend to drive me up there, tow a trailer with that twin star on the trailer. Um, friend drove me up there with my buddy, the one who I said I taught on the twin star. He borrowed somebody's uh, XT225 that had, like, pretty much street tires. And we went up there, and we did that. 
And that was our first introduction to, that was his first off-road thing. Well, and what was uh, that, my first time. What was that first event like? Because I've seen pictures of it and I've seen some scary shit with you in those pictures. <laughs> so yeah, I took off and I was nervous. I let everybody go at first. And uh, as soon as we went on the trails, I realized I still knew how to ride dirt and I was ripping okay. on the twin star and having fun. And, uh, you know, I learned that there were options. So I started doing those, which like, I'm just beating that bike. So I didn't care about it. Yeah. And, uh, the one was a rock garden. And I remember people cheering Twin Star when I was going into it because people had asked me about the bike. And I mean, it still has the chrome fenders on it. I mean, it's all beat to hell. The bike's had outside for seven years. Yeah. You know, the seat covers tore off of it, but it has the You're chrome fenders, the big, you know, the light stalks that stick out a foot. And uh, they, they used to. <laughs> yeah. Just went in and started blasting a rock garden. And uh, I probably only made it a half mile through this thing. And it bent the rear brake arm, and it was dragging, uh, dragging that drum brake. And I didn't realize. I thought I was just getting stuck in the rocks because the case is just banging off of them, yeah, and whatnot. And uh, it burnt the clutch out pretty quick. I started to realize the clutch was slipping, and uh, took me. I started. I said, "Well, I'll, I'll push it off the trail and let it cool down." And um, I tried to get off the trail. And I, I didn't realize the rear wheel was pretty much locked up from the brake dragging. And it, it yeah. smoked that clutch. The clutch didn't come back after letting it cool. That sucks. Yeah. So uh, I did not finish. I told my buddy on the XT to go on and uh, to send help for me. And it was like on a mountain ridge. So I just like freewheeled down the mountain. I found a fire cut. Hmm. Kind of going down the mountain. And uh, just put the bike in neutral, disconnected the rear brake and just bombed down it, which was <laughs> sketchy because like yeah. it, you're not supposed to ride down this, you know, but yeah. I couldn't push it. I'd ask people how far in I was, I guess. And it would have been like a mile or so. I guess I probably made it close to a mile up this trail, but it was downhill the way I was headed originally. Right. And then I'm on a ridge and I said, I can't push it through the rock garden back up. And I kept pushing it forward and forward. And eventually somebody told me that this was like a seven mile trail or something. And uh, so I freewheeled down because they, I heard there was a dirt road down there. Yeah. I got out there and eventually somebody came and picked me up. That was my wow. first uh, dual sport. And then we <laughs> went back to the camp and uh, it was a good time. Everybody drinks a bunch of beer there and you have a great time. Yeah. Big old party. So, uh. After that, I went home and ordered a set of tires for the Versys right away. <laughs> this is, this is, what's Adventure Light ride, or what's Adventure Riding like? Oh, I just, I go out and we break stuff and then we go drink a bunch of beers and then we can't wait to do the next one. Yeah, that's it in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. So after that, I, uh, I put on some tires, um, got ordered some tires. I waited till like the week before, um, that Pine Barrens 500 to put them on. Because I wanted to uh, uh, wanted to make sure I didn't wear them out on the street yeah. or anything. So I put them on, did a little ride, you know, by my house. Went and hit some trails with it and said, yeah, I'll go there and see what it's like. And um, went and did the Pine Barrens 500. And it was an awesome time. Met some cool people. Like, showed up by myself. Had no one to ride with. Um real nervous so like i tried to find some mellow dudes to let me join their group 
but then it turned out they were too mellow. They were like the stereotypical adventure rider. The, Seemed uh, like they had never ridden in sand before. Yeah. I mean, and, I mean uh, lo- that's lots of East Coasters, though. Lots of us have never got, been over yeah. there. I grew up, you know, my favorite track when I did race moto was a sand track. Yeah. That was like my absolute favorite one. So uh, I had never grew up riding any rocks, which is funny because everyone I met <laughs> were all rock guys pretty much. And, uh, this guy. That's what everyone does <laughs> is goes and they ride rocks. So, uh, but yeah, I went and rode that and it was a great time and I was pretty addicted to it after that, I guess. So yeah. I went and did the sandblast rally that March. And uh, I guess in between the two, I went and rode in uh, George Washington National Forest on their trail system in the middle nice. of the winter. We went there. I put another clutch in the Twin Star and gave it to a buddy to go. Turns out George Washington's also, their ATV trails are just all rock garden. Twin <laughs> Star burned out another clutch. We, uh, we had to drag it out because, we, of course, that happened at, like, the furthest point you possibly are in the trail. Always. So uh, three of us drug it out. It took hours. That uh, sucks. But it makes for a good story. Yeah. But, you know, it was my first time riding rocks on the Versys, so I figured it out. And uh, after that, I wasn't really scared to do adventure riding anymore. I think I just put on a skid plate before that, too. So, yeah. And uh, uh, went and did the rally race. That was uh, that was good. I rode down there. Sandbla- sandblast rally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you, that would you be should cool. describe the sandblast rally to the listeners. Um, we've talked about the Pine Barrens event before, but the sandblast rally you're the first to talk about it. So please describe what that's like to people. Yeah. So the sandblast rally is put on by uh, NASA is the organization that hosts it, and. Um, they hold like uh, U.S. and Canadian rallies. It's a one-day rally. It has different stages. I don't recall how many now. It's been quite a few years since I raced it last. But um, sure, it's Sand Roads down in South Carolina, in Cheryl, South Carolina. Uh, each section, you know, from, I don't know, they vary between like five miles and maybe 20 for the long one, racing on Sand Roads. And uh, they got bikes and cars doing it and it is a pretty good time um it's not technical so you can do it on an adventure bike if you're comfortable uh very high speed like i mean i was topping out the verses you know my bike only does like a a little over 110 with the the gearing i had on it i think 111 and uh there were dudes doing like 150 if you had a one of the ktms that could handle it it would you could go as fast as you want it there. Um, but it's great. Sand, it doesn't hurt to crash in for the most part, you know? As much. Yeah. I low-sided going like 50 in a corner and it was fine. Like, got up and just kept on going. Wow. But um, obviously, yeah, people do break bones and get concussions and get hurt there. So, it's, you can get hurt in the sand. Yeah. Try not to I, crash at the 100-mile-an-hour parts, so. I've not done... Uh, the event, obviously, but I went to basic training in South Carolina. So when I see the pictures, I'm like, these look like fire break roads that I know, you know, from being on, you know, a military post, it's the same shtick. It's, it's a, a two lane sand road through the middle of pine forest. It's 
it's gorgeous. And yeah, I can definitely see how you guys can really haul ass if it's straight. Yeah, it's fun. Um, it's fun. It's fast. It uh, filled my need for speed at the time. Had the desire to race again. Um, so it scratched that itch. And at the time, I loaded up stuff. I rode to the event, camped there, and then rode on down to Florida and worked in Florida for a month and uh, camped in my neighbor's wood. I mean, uh, my co-worker's woods with yeah. the bike and just went adventure riding. Like after work every day, went ride down there. Um, what part of Florida? Uh, near Daytona. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, did a ride there from the CADS Club puts it on. Classic adventure dual sports. I'm trying to remember what they called it. Trans Florida Rally. You ride from the East Coast. Up. Yeah, you ride from the East over to the Gulf via, you know, sand roads. And then spend the night there and then come back. And uh, I just met, you know, some people while I was down there told me about it. So I did with them. It was a great time. Uh, one of the guys I met from doing that, we decided to ride up to March Motor Madness in yeah. Teleco Plains, Tennessee. And he told me that he had a route that was like mostly sand road and, you know, till Georgia dirt road to get there. So him and I were going to take a couple of days to do it. Uh, I guess two days in or so. Yeah, I guess at the end of the second day, I smoked the motor in the Verses in the Georgia mountains. Huh. Um, I had been following him on his 690 the whole time. Yeah. Uh, this was before I had a GPS or anything. So I just followed. And um, yeah, apparently I was just eating that sand dust I rode in the whole time. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. You know, it's got a street bike air filter system. Yep. And apparently it like kind of come unsealed. It's a split air box, you know, yeah. which is behind the filter where it seals. So uh, it looked like somebody just roosted the inside of it. So, uh, That's yeah, somewhere up in the Georgia mountains. Remember the oil light came on, uh, oil pressure light. I look, realize I don't have oil, don't have any spare oil. And we're 25 miles, like, away from yeah. the closest town. You know, like, there's, we're in a mountain pass. Like, there's only forward. So, um, I just tried to keep the revs up to keep some pressure. And uh, I made it, you know, it, as long as it's warm, it would run. But uh, it died out the next day. Someone I had met through Instagram, adventure rider guy. Yeah. Uh, Chad, he had picked me up on his way to Teleco Plains and took me there. And then uh, Steve Camrad was there and I had met him. I the met Teleco him, Plains? Yes, for March Motor Madness. Oh, okay. It all um, makes sense now. You know, I met him at uh, the Pine Barrens 500 yeah. with him and stayed in touch. So I bummed, he's from New Jersey. So I bummed a ride back north with him Yeah. from it. And, uh, he so, so you missed March Moto Madness and what it's normally like. I rented um, a KLR there. Oh my God! One yes. Of the guys. So no, yes. I, I took a rental KLR and I did all the March <laughs> Moto Madness stuff. Great but time. Tell the, tell the listeners about March Moto Madness because I don't know how much we've talked about that in the past. It's a fun adventure event put on by uh, I guess what's the BMW organization? 
Oh man, they have a name, and I feel bad that I can't remember yeah. it off the top of my head. But it's it is a uh, you know G- GS Giants, GS yes, Giants. That's it. that's it. Good one. Um, they put it on. It's sort of like a bike rally, like a get together rally. Everybody's camping. It's in March, obviously, in uh, Teleco Plains, Florida. Uh, not Florida, Tennessee. And yeah. uh, they get an insane amount of rain, pretty much guaranteed. Yep. Um, but it is by, it's right by the tail of the dragon. And there's a ton of good uh, dirt roads and trails there. And just great riding. All the water crossings you could want. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. So, they got the uh, uh, the Buffalo 500 that's there. Um, I think you were there in 16 and I was there in 17, if I remember correctly. I think that's the way that played out. Yeah, I, met, I met you there the next year, too. The next year, I rode the Versys down again. Th- that's right. We t- we d- I forgot all about that. We did cross paths for a hot second in 17. Good point. Wow. Yeah. I totally have forgotten about that because I got a picture of you riding that, uh, that 1200 Harley with the recluse in it. Yes. That <laughs> thing was all great. about that. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's great. They they give you a couple um, little ride options, and you're just free to do whatever you want during the day there. Yeah, everybody meets up for funs and fun and games, and uh, they do like a barrel race, you know, and uh, usually have an obstacle course. Yep. They had trails on site, like a little loop, so yeah. it's fun. You can mess around. Everybody swapping bikes with each other to go try it out. You know, the creek crossing literally into the campground. Yeah, it's I mean, it, it's valid um, for for listeners that obviously have not been to the scramble. Red River Scramble is structured very close to the way that they have done March Motor Madness. It's the same concept. Um, I've probably put more effort into navigation and some other stuff, um, but we're smaller. So that's part of it. They were like 700 people the year that you and I ran into each other. It was insane. Yeah, it was crazy. I think they tried to find a way to cap it after that or something. Wow. Because the turnout was crazy. So yeah, I did that. I went there two years and then that really kicked off the whole, that was my year of adventure riding. And yeah. uh, I rode out to uh, red river scramble, which is yeah. where I, I met you. You're I think like that the, was the first time I met you, right? Was there. You're correct. Well, yes, that was both. before March Moto madness though. Right. Oh man, my memory is shot. I thought I thought I did March Moto Madness in seventeen, and then hosted Red River Scramble in seventeen. But maybe it was I hosted in seventeen, and the and we went to March Moto Madness in eighteen. My memory is pretty well shot. But I know Red River Scramble's first edition was seventeen, and you're one of the first like fourteen people to go. Yes, so that was great. One of my uh, other buddies got into riding. He picked up a DR six fifty. And we rode on out there and uh, did my standard. We boondocked, left, I guess, like Friday night or something, Friday or Thursday night, and uh, boondocked somewhere random on the way out and uh, showed up fashionably late the next day, as we always do. Um, yeah, you missed you missed lunch. <laughs> I think it was like 1 or 2 o'clock when you joined the other guys and went out and did crazy stuff. Yeah, you guys uh, were about to do kickstand stuff, and we pulled into the parking lot. Yeah. Uh, great time getting to go ride those trails there. <laughs> I think you and, guys uh, made it through Spass Creek, Pumpkin Hollow, and then uh, found my favorite staircase on Chop Chestnut. Yes, punctured my oil pan. <laughs> had to. Uh, I brought JB Weld with me, which was literally right before I left. I was asking my buddy. I said, "Hey, should we bring this JB Weld?" 
I said, I always have it. And uh, I was trying to like cut down the random crap I carried with me because I didn't have like a hadn't sorted out my tools. I just brought random stuff from uh, like when I did that first road trip, we just like took literally all my tools, threw them in one saddlebag and wow. just rode around with random assortment of stuff. If we needed anything, we go to like a O'Reilly's or AutoZone or something, and whatever, Home Depot and buy whatever wrench we lost or whatever oh, we yeah. needed. But um, yeah, good thing I kept that um, <laughs> because I had to JB weld my oil pan. And uh, that was good. One of the other guys was nice enough to go ride and get some oil for me since That's, I lost uh- most of it. <laughs> That's funny. You and I have texted about that event still, but I was still like, I didn't realize you had the JB Weld. I thought they had to buy that from the gas station too, but. No, it had the, the JB Weld, so it was good. By the time he got back, the JB Weld was reasonably cured and uh, filled her up with oil and we kept on riding. So you guys just kicked it over on the trail, pulled the oil pan right off, JB Weld it, or did you JB Weld it while it was attached to the bike? No, I JB welded while I was attached to the bike. I yeah. um, pried the exhaust away. That was the problem. We had to let the exhaust cool. Yeah. It has the underslung exhaust. And the exhaust hanger is what, uh, going down that staircase, It uh, the skid plate got pushed in into the exhaust, and the exhaust went up and smacked a hole in it. So uh, I guess I loosened up all the exhaust mounts. Yeah. I didn't fully, I doubt I fully removed it. And, um, yeah. And just put some JB weld up in there. It's, I mean, your, your experience was at the very beginning of my adventure off-road experience. And I have, it's that particular situation came up. Uh, I did a podcast with somebody else recently and we were talking about the new Honda Transalp. And that's the issue is if you're not talking about a scrambler like mine, if you're not talking about the Africa twin or the T seven, none of these other adventure bikes have an underbone frame. So all of these skid plates are floating on rubber cushions on, on the oil pan. And sometimes the exhaust is between those two things. And I'm like, this is a serious issue. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that skid plate on most of them tell you they're not, they're not skid plates. They're, whatever i forget what they how they word it rock, they're rock not for guards hits. yeah <laughs> yeah definitely not for rocks fixed in the ground i'll tell you that i've uh, i punctured that oil my oil pan at least one other time yeah i think i think yeah because i did end up replacing it and then i did it again and jb welded it and replaced that eventually and uh it had helped because i had a spare motor for the bike so I, I, I scavenge stuff when I break a case. After the second time I destroyed the motor, I, I'd i rebuilt the motor once after that cross-country trip. It didn't really need it, but I don't know. I, I checked the compression values, and they were yeah. reading low. Not like crazy low, but low. So I decided to rebuild it, which was a waste. Yeah. But um, anyway, after doing that, you know, it probably cost 600 bucks to just do, uh, like, piston rings and timing chain or something yeah and gaskets so um the next time i after i sucked all that sand in i bought a motor from a parted out bike on ebay they had a video of it running the bike had like 600 miles on, or had six thousand miles yeah 
which is before the Verzi's first scheduled oil change. <laughs> so they had yeah. a video of the whole bike, and, you know, they tore it down, shipped me the motor. It was shipped 800 bucks. <sighs> so uh, it took, like, uh, like an hour to drop the motor and put the new one in. And I it's was like, uh, why am I rebuilding these? Like, yeah. So I kept the spare around and it was great because I ended up scavenging all those cases. Uh, once yeah, I started I, adventure riding it. it, it makes sense. I mean, I've said that I, it, I just said it today. Somebody was talking to me like, what, what is my scrambler worth? If I put all of the parts I've put into it and tried to sell it at the value <laughs> of those parts. And I kind of laugh because I never really thought about it. But it's just like, he's like, well, what would it take for somebody to buy it from you? And I'm like, like a million dollars. Like, yeah. I've, you know, it's built specifically to exactly what I want. There's no bike on the market that has it. Like somebody would have to start offering me 12, 13, 14 grand because that's what it would take to get me into a different bike that is exactly what I want. So it's, it's there's something to be said for that, having that extra motor on stock like that. It just... Just pop it in there and go sweet. It's just like the old one. Yep, it's great. I mean, one of the better things about the Versys is that it's pretty much a Ninja 650. I mean, it, it's like literally a Ninja 650 that has yeah. uh, different forks put on it and a different swing arm. Um, so the motor's interchangeable. And besides being in the Versys and the Ninja 650, they made it for that uh, the ER6N, they called it or something. I didn't know that one. Right there, there's a. Uh, oh wait, um, is that what they? I think that's what they called it. It was like the Z650, basically. Huh. The naked version of the Ninja. Yeah. They made that, um, and then they have a cruiser with that motor, and they just all have like slightly different cam profiles. Yeah. Oh man, the fact that that cruiser is escaping me. I had a buddy that had that one. It. I mean it, and then I got a buddy that's local. He's a big KLR guy, and he says that motor fits in a KLR. And he's seriously been thinking about dropping that motor into the KLR to get something that's more off-roady than the Versys is, but something that's more streetable, um, you know, because you obviously know better than anybody what, what it's like to have that Versys motor on the street, So, but but have that dual purpose. And I've, I've said that publicly elsewhere because people talk about Kawasaki getting into the adventure game a little bit more seriously. And I'm like, no, seriously pump up that KLR frame a little bit and drop that engine in it. Cause that engine's very good from what everyone said, you know, again, you know, better than anybody. Yeah. The engine's phenomenal. I mean, <clears throat> I, I really thought it was about the best thing until the FC07 came out. Mm. FC07 is pretty much like a better, it's like that motor, but it keeps pulling on top. It's yeah. I, I mean, Andy and I've talked about it ad nauseum, both on and off the podcast. I, I, that engine makes more horsepower than my scrambler does and has virtually the same torque. Um, in my opinion, it doesn't have the same character, but it's liquid cooled. I shouldn't be surprised. It's Japanese and liquid cooled, but it has as much torque virtually and every bit more of horsepower than my 865 twin does. It's pretty untouchable. Yeah. I mean, I, I do agree though. Cowie really could just put that parallel twin in a KLR frame, slightly modified, and basically do nothing else to it. Even though, you know, like the KLR doesn't have the best suspension or anything, but all of it's yeah. good enough and it would be cheap yeah. and not require R&D. I, I, I think that they would be wise. I mean, they could even make it 19-inch front, 17-inch rear and get away with that. And it's an improvement because Cowie doesn't have a 1917 combo, if I remember correctly. Um 
I'm a little fuzzy at the moment. But the Versys 300X is the only thing. Good point. But uh, yes, they need to make a Versys 650X or right. just jam that motor in a KLR frame. I've seen people do it, yeah. so it's reasonably doable. I, I wish I they would have just doing. entered the market if they just put a 19-inch frontal in the Versys and said like did no other R&D or whatever, I feel like that would have at least gotten them some of those uh, V-Strom sales, you know? Yeah. V-Strom is like, yeah. I don't know. The first ones were so ugly, I could never stomach them. <laughs> it is bad. It's it's really funny you say that, because that's right. I mean, like, think Honda decided to make the CB500X 1917, and then Suzuki recently released a brand new engine brand new like suzuki hasn't made a new bike in a really really long time and they just made an 800 like kawasaki what are you doing dude get after it man yeah i don't know if they're just like we missed the boat on this adventure thing so uh, i don't know i feel like throwing a 19 inch front wheel although it's not like a big improvement realistically I mean, they're, they're nicer than the 17s. I've ridden both. Yeah. I've ridden Versys with the 19-inch on it, but, like, it costs them pretty much nothing to do this, and people do care about it. It's That's the funny thing about it, right, is it's, it's really about tire options. And, yes, no question about it. The 19 handles, you know, you turn the wheel and it doesn't push as hard, um, and that is better. But the road manners are still pretty damn good with a 19. Like, it, that seems like, like I said, Honda figured this out. Like, they're always the last to the party. So it's kind of surprising that Kawasaki has held on this long. Yeah. I mean, people are, uh, people, you hear their criticisms on the internet. They're way too judgmental about all oh, the road handling between them, blah, blah, yeah. blah. I mean, having the sport bike size front wheel on the Versys makes a difference for sport bike things. But if you're buying something with a 19 inch front wheel, that's not what you're looking for, but no. not that you can't. I mean, I raced, uh, my buddy's KLR after I blew up that versus, uh, Intellico planes. I had a rally race, uh, about, a, I guess a couple weeks after that or something. I don't remember. Um, and I didn't have that motor in yet for my bike. So yeah. I borrowed his KLR and um, it was like uh, some type of, we were doing like hot laps type thing, but it was 50% dirt, 50% on a tarmac track. Wow. And uh, real supermoto. Yeah. I put a D606 front on and uh, the rear was like a Shinko 705 or something. Cause that's what I had laying around. Yeah. Or whatever. Cause I told him, I'm like, oh, I don't want to burn your tires off. So, but I'm like, I don't want my front end to wash in the dirt, but I went out, I was dragging me and my leathers on that thing with a knob. Like you That's can handle awesome. a 21 inch with knobs. They're just fine. Yeah. I mean, it, it skates around some under braking and whatnot, but it's a knobby on pavement. Yeah. But like you can, they corner just fine. What? Well, I mean, arguably, the steering is sharper with a 21 than it is with a 17. It's just leaned over. It scares the shit out of you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really what it is. So, I I mean, there's so many stories in here, and, and I'm glad we uncovered things that I didn't know. Uh, 
as of late, since I've seen you and you and I've really talked and had beers in person and whatnot, you've been racing like dirt bike, dirt bikes. So tell me about that transition and what have you been up to for the last two years? Yeah. Um, I was all about the adventure thing. Uh, just kind of was burned out on it, I guess a little bit. And, yeah. um, also my bike was just getting clapped. I kind of yeah. moved from, I wasn't really doing adventure anymore. I was now, I bought a pickup truck and was taking the verses everywhere. Yeah. Um, because like my, it has cast rims. They were cracked. I just, uh, drilled holes to stop the cracks from going and it worked. Yeah. But I mean, they're like octagons. I had to run tubes. Um, it, the bike was not really roadworthy. You know, I no longer had like, <laughs> there's no turn signals, no speedo, no mirror. You know, there's none of that stuff. It was just, I was just off-roading it and thrashing it on stuff because I could. And it was challenging. Yeah. Um, you know, like, hey, let's go ride dual sports and try and do all the options on this. But um, when you do put holes in cases on it, which uh, started happening more and more frequent. And I kept destroying things more and more often on it. You had, what, four oil pans on that thing, I think, after you... Yeah, right? <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, you know, I bashed up the radiator and it overheated. The motor I had in it was, like, pretty weak. At the end, I'm pretty sure it was running on... Until it warmed up, it was running on one cylinder. <sighs> like, I mean, that thing was smoked. I, I was just going an off-road. I was riding as a dirt bike, so... Uh, yeah. And then I got married. Money was a little tight while I was figuring that out. So, uh... And saving up to try and buy a house and whatnot. But I got married, and I said, you know what? I'm going to buy a dirt bike again. So I bought that WR250F, and um, all my adventure friends had moved to the little bikes for pretty much the same reason. It was weird how it happened to, like, all of us at once. And, and like, you and I, we weren't talking yeah. about that, but it totally happened at the same time. Exactly. All the adventure guys, all my buddies, they moved to buying Endora bikes. And... Uh, I, I held out for about a year and I was like, nah, man, I don't want to do that. And then, uh, I was like, I can ride those trails on the big bike, but then they moved to riding like actual Enduros and stuff. And yeah. I said, man, they did that 24 hour race. And I yep. thought that was cool. I said, that was interesting. Cause I told myself I didn't really want to race dirt bikes anymore. Thought I was over it. But, um, that 24 hour race enticed me, but I bought that dirt bike and uh, I don't know. I made it maybe two months and I started racing. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess I, oh no, I bought it and I raced it like two weeks later. Never mind. Yeah. Yeah. I immediately went and ran an Enduro and I thought I was going to do an Enduros and uh, COVID happened. Local Enduro yeah. series uh, got canceled. So yeah. um, there was a hair scramble series that partially formed. They did it. They managed to get a couple races. So I started doing those. Now, I'd raced, like, three hair scrambles or something when I did moto. I raced the local ones in Delaware when they happened. Um, and I liked it, the bar-to-bar -bar action. Uh, yeah. Just going there and, you know, locally, if you're in C-class, it's an hour and a half race, and your A and B is two hours. So you just go there, you show up an hour early, and uh, get your race in, and then you can go home. And I like that. Moto was a lot of sitting around all day. Yeah. Uh, waiting to go get your four laps in. And uh, I just wasn't about that anymore. So, yeah, I uh, got addicted to racing again. Now that I said, when I look back, I've pretty much raced 
ever since I started racing motocross, it just slowly moved from one thing to another. During that yeah. period, I didn't have the bike. I did a couple autocrosses. And then I bought that CX. And I tried to find ways to, like, get into vintage racing with that. <laughs> but the classes were way too straight and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I wanted to track. I ended up buying a Grom in a period there, too. And um, do mini moto GPs yep. on go-kart tracks with it. I had the Versys. I did the Rally. I was showing up, did some, like, I uh, did a hill climb. Did a TT race with it. Just go and race whatever I could find, basically. Yeah. It, uh, um, take me back to that for a second. What made you pick the WR250F? Um, I guess I've always been a little bit of a Yamaha fanboy since I had like three Yamahas growing up. But um, I test rode a couple bikes that my buddies had. Now, they were mostly set up for moto. Um, I didn't really gel with the KTMs. I found I gelled best with 250Fs out of what I tried. Um, you know, tried 252 stroke, um, 302 stroke, 250F, 350, 450. Um, I felt at home on KX250Fs, huh. particularly one that was set up for the woods felt really good. The new like the one? stock one. Uh, no, this would be a, a 17 and an 18. That's what I was saying. It was I before that. Yeah, before they had a cross-country model. Okay. Exactly. So they didn't have the cross-country model. I wanted, They were kickstart only still. That was a big letdown for off-road racing. Yeah. Um, since you do end up stalling in off-road. And kicking it is a killer. So Yamaha had electric start. Um, I Yamaha also made the WR with a light and a tail light. So it was pretty much prime for Enduro. Yeah. Yep. Um, it was also way cheaper than a KTM. I mean, I yep. think I bought that bike brand new for uh, 7200 out the door. It was a yeah. leftover. I bought it in January of 2020, just before COVID went yep. off. So they were pretty much at uh, their lowest point. Yep. And uh, it was, I guess, between that and a KTM. And uh, it, the KTMs weren't priced well for me locally. It, I mean, to support your point, I got a chance to ride the WR250F two weeks ago. I hadn't ridden one before. Um, and obviously, I love my 350 if you're a four-stroke guy. And there's huge advantages to riding my 350 doing hair scrambles in enduro. But man, if I was only racing hair scrambles, I would have a very difficult time picking my 350 XCFW with the wide ratio of six-speed over the WR. The WR is shockingly good at, at, at the cross country type stuff. I was very happy on that bike. It felt amazing. Yeah. I also liked, um, you know, I, I researched it before I bought it. Mm -hmm. uh, in once they went, when uh, Yamaha came out with the new YZ250F in 2014, yeah. the WRs then started aligning with the current yeah. YZ. Whereas before they were like, very outdated, like 2004 YZ250F based. Um, so the new one being with that, it being at the end of its, I bought a 2019, which was the last year of that generation. Um, so well documented on how well the motors held up and they were known to be one of the most reliable, um, which was important to me because I didn't really want to rebuild a four stroke. 
you kind of break <laughs> stuff. I'm not sure if we covered that, you know, an hour and some plus minutes into this. You break yeah. things, so that's important. Yeah, so uh, I thought that was important in the suspension. Um, you know, I think suspension and tires are what what matter most. And that KYB stuff on them is uh, very good. Uh, it was, I'm telling you, it was spot on from the moment I got on. I mean, it's a friend of mine's bike who I really have never ridden with maybe more than twice. And it was pff, amazing from go. Yeah. So uh, I liked it. Gelled with the bike pretty quick. After a year, I got the suspension set up for me. It was always too stiff um, from the factory, the spring rate. And I got it revalved. And then after another year racing, um, you know, after the first year, it went pretty well. I got bumped up to B class. Um, then after year B, I'd found myself getting pretty fast, and I'm on the front side of B class. So I got it revalved again. And then I just did another year in B, and I think I'm getting bumped to A. And yeah. uh, now my bike has 200. Well, it's been, I don't know, it's been a month or two since I checked, but Last, yeah. it had 277 hours on it, I think, engine hours. No rebuild or anything. Um, no just, piston, nothing? Nothing. That's uh, that's awesome, 300 hours almost. It looks very clean. I just changed the oil in it uh, and the air filter. But, um, I mean, it's, it's much higher than I would like. Originally, I thought I was going to get rid of it at the end of last season. I do about 100 hours a year on the bike. Yeah. So I said 200 hours seems like a good point. Um, I know some local people, like there's a double A dude who's gotten 300 plus hours out of his KTMs, both two yeah. stroke and four stroke, like no rebuild. Right. So, I mean, modern bikes, if you take care of them, tend to go it's, very long. I got Assuming there's no manufacturing issues, but. Right. I've got 407 hours on my 350 and it has a piston in it to the best of my knowledge. So, I mean, it, they go a long time. It's so, a 2012, I might add. Yeah. <laughs> or sorry, 2013. So, yeah. Plus, I mean, if you consider the hours were put on in such a short time, you know, everything's not as bad generally as if it's spread out over many years. The aging yeah. and wearing of stuff. Um, but, yeah, I decided I went and got a brand new Yamaha uh, 23YZ250FX. Um so I've been very happy with mine. The This is the next generation one. Yeah. Um, still pretty similar to mine. I haven't even rode the bike yet. I was about to ask you. <laughs> so are you switching to, is the FX, the YZFX a five speed? No. No, it's also the oh, six. It's, six. it's got the wide range, wide ratio six. I did not know they offered that in the YZFX. Yes. Um, I thought about just getting the YZ250F. Um, because I think I prefer motocross gear ratios. Yeah. You have the tall first, so like, eh, but the hair scrambles aren't as technical. Yeah. Um, when I first got my bike, I was just going up the PA and riding rock gardens every weekend to learn how to ride rocks with other, with the PA guys. Yeah. Um, but most of it's not that gnarly. First gears, usually I'm hoping I don't have to use it. <laughs> yeah i like to ride a gear high when i can um but yeah it's the wr and the fx are very similar 
I will say that kind of disappoints me a little bit that uh, Yamaha hasn't differentiated, but I'm not educated enough to make that call. I'm, I would love to ride those two back to back and see. I just I don't want to see the WR moniker go away. Yeah, so like I don't think it will. Um, the WR seemed like they've always been popular out west, the 450 yeah. particularly, but um, in Australia as well. Yes, well over there they come street legal. Yeah, right. That the WR is like the bike to be yes. in, in in Oz, right? Like they exactly. love that machine there. To include mine, the R, like that's also a big thing, right? Right. So, I mean, the I didn't get a WR again. I don't really need the lights. I don't use them often, and yeah. it's pretty cheap to put on your own lighting setup. Um, so that's my current plan for the few times a year I would like it, and then. Uh, like it already comes uncorked. The WR comes corked up. It has a locked ECU. Good point. Which wasn't a big deal when I bought mine. It was like a hundred bucks to get the GYTR race ECU yep. for it. It allows you to tune it and everything. And um, the restrictions were really easy to remove anyway. Just like a intake restrictor and a corked up exhaust, you can just unscrew and take out. Yeah. But uh. The WR does have like a spark rester in the exhaust, so it is like whatever US FARS compliant and stuff. And it's it's got like a little pea shooter exhaust though. Even after you take out the restriction. <laughs> These days, if you're the kind of person that puts an FMF or and and I'll plug this. Oh man, I can't think of what Rocky Mountains brand is, but I have that on my WR. Changing out, you know, you're looking at thirty, sixty bucks to get spark rester. It's not a big deal. Oh yeah, yeah, it's no big deal. Um. WR comes with a radiator fan. You have the little Enduro dash uh, that can do your speed, mileage, calculate average speed for you. Um, it's like a pretty much like the same as like the KTM ones, you know, on an EXCF. Yeah. Most people are more familiar with that. It's good. Um, yeah. You know, same deal with that. You get the headlight and the tail lamp on it. Um, I feel like that's more or less the differentiation between the two. Well, that's solid. I mean, you've educated me substantially. I did not realize, uh, one, that the YZFX had had that many advancements. And those, that is still a pretty significant difference. If it, it, I'm Again, you've painted me in WR territory. The, the likelihood of plating it is much higher for me. Yeah, I mean, it's really simple to just get it. I mean, depending on where you are and if you know the ways yeah. how to plate it, WR's set up pretty well to pretty much slap a plate on that bad boy if if we get a certificate of origin here in ohio it's much easier to plate a dirt bike bill of sale as i've been doing research lately is almost impossible but um if you got a certificate of origin and some other stuff you can usually get a title yeah i know you and i've talked about it so we don't need to uh hold down the (laughs) podcast but yes there's many ways to go about it you just gotta be in the know sort of and of course each state has its own rigmarole to it but uh there's always shout out to south dakota for hooking us up <laughs> i need to do some homework on that because i've <laughs> i've been debating about trading my 350 for another two-stroke um because when it comes to racing i'm definitely a two-stroke guy but uh you've probably seen my photos um yes rock gardens like a yes. lot among other things and all all the clay that you can stand uh so what did you uh did you get any titles i mean you've how did you finish the past two years as far as you talked about moving up classes but uh where'd you place in that stuff 
yeah, the first year I didn't actually race any classes. I just kind of did some random races. Um, I started in just racing 250C, and then um, I turned 30, so I was eligible for vet class. Yeah. Um, but, like, you know, I raced the local hair scramble, did, like, two of those in C class. first one was terrible. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I immediately went too hard. I, you know, I just was panicked, whatever. There was, like, 50 dudes on the line. I was the last guy to show up to the line. Yeah. You know, I read that you were supposed to, like, go, like, 15 minutes early is when they would let you go do it. But n- nobody actually checks. So I show up exactly 15 minutes early. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> there was already 51 guys on my line. And I was like, oh. my oh. God. Yeah, I had to line up way outside. Like, I mean, I was, like, in a parking lot. Like, oh, yeah. I had to line up at, like, a 45-degree angle to go around cars and spectators. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I started dead last, too. I uh, <laughs> tried to. For whatever reason, I tried to switch it up last second and only pull my clutch in. I started in gear. I tried to only pull my clutch in with two fingers um, because that's how I like to use the clutch. Yeah. But the bike won't start that way. (laughs) It needs to be all the way to the bar, like full finger, four finger clutch. My bike was like dead stock with handguards on it. So, uh, yeah, um, yeah, I got a terrible start. I ended up making my way to like 25th or something. I felt I was pretty good. Like I went pretty fast, but. I was like, man, this off-road stuff's hard. <laughs> you know, I got stuck on a hill climb because there was just, yeah, I'm back of the pack, you know? Yeah. And uh, got my heart rate maxed out. And I was like, man, I got to put in work. So then the next race, I totally botched the start again. I, uh, I was real nervous. And um, I kept forgetting, I guess, that I was in, I wanted to make sure I put the bike in gear before the start. So I didn't start in neutral. And, um... I guess I clicked up and I didn't think it went in gear. So I clicked up again and then I did it again and uh, I literally took off in fourth gear. So I started (laughs) last again. And uh, in case you don't know, fourth fourth gear on a 250F, it's not a, it's not the way to start. And, uh, but anyway, I like kept my composure this time and made my way up and I finished sixth this time. So I felt pretty solid and I went and did a national enduro and, I got ninth, I think, in C250, and I was like, okay, I was hoping to be a little better than that, but was, whatever, learning, you know, and my buddy told me, hey, like, move up to vet class, come race yeah. that with me, uh, Camrad was like, dude, just move up, and I was like, uh, I don't know, and uh, he's like, come on, we get to race on the same line, and uh, so the next race I did it, I moved up, and it was like a hair scramble, this part moto track. Yeah. Which played to my favor. And um, yeah, I like started in like third, led a lap, made it to first through the moto track section. But uh, those guys were, were whooping me. Once it got in the muddy, the woods and stuff, <laughs> they still have me. I ended up finishing third. Um, and then I think I got a couple fourth places to round out the thing. I was still learning, trying to figure it together. I got to lead one race. I thought I was going to win, and I just really started, got nervous, got in my head, and started crashing, and slowly, slowly just losing the way back. And, um, yeah, yeah, Steve was trying to talk me into moving up to Vet B, and (laughs) uh, both of us ended up getting bumped. I knew he was getting bumped for sure. He was killing it in Vet class, and uh, I was surprised. I ended up getting bumped by the AMA uh, Wow. to B. And uh, I said, well, it's great. You know, I got a podium. 
in C class. And I thought maybe one day, like if I work hard, I can like get top five in B class. And uh, it started slow and I just kept working, you know, I finished like 12th in B class. I think my first hair scramble and just kept going. Actually, no, the first thing I did was I went into the national enduro in B class because it was like in February and I finished 39th out of 40th. (laughs) And I was like, man, I'm like, I do. I was so deflated, really killed my ego. And, uh, but you know, I just, I started working a lot harder in B class. You had to do two hour mains. I realized like I needed to have some fitness if I was going to do this. Um, and that like, there weren't easy passes for me anymore. All the little tricks I knew to get around people in C class was, well, these guys are all my speed or better now. So you can't just be like, ah, it's easy. You know, I'll just outbreak them going into this corner. Those guys are all better on the brakes now too. So uh, it took a bit, but by the end of the year, I, uh, it made my way up to start getting podiums. I just like finished, uh, I just tried to do one better, like every race. Yeah. I finished 12th and the next race I finished 12th, I think. Then I finished 10th Then I finished 10th. Then I finished eighth and I finished eighth the next race. And then I got like a sixth, then a fifth. And then I got another fifth and then I got like a third and then I got some thirds and then I got a second and then I got some yeah. seconds and then I started battling for the lead. Uh, I didn't win, but the very last race I finished, uh, we showed tied on the school wow. where we literally finished like uh half a bike length there. I, uh, That's awesome. Couldn't edge it out, but, um, and then, uh, missed out on getting bumped up to a class from that. Um, so I raced B again this year. Uh, last year I finished fourth and third in the series, uh, fourth in ECA and, uh, third in, um, district six. Yeah. So, uh, this season I decided to race ECA and, um, ECA hair scrambles and AMA East hair scrambles. Um, I won AMA East hair scrambles, uh, but with no wins, just some second places. But uh, it's consistency. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've said it on other podcasts. I mean, it just had... wasn't very well contested. There was only like one other guy who he only did like half of them. Right. Um, and me and him, we had a great time. We battled all the time when we got to race each other for it. So that was great. But nobody else really seemed to want to putting a big effort in my class to do it's, it. it it's consistency i mean and that's the thing is it's like people can say like other people didn't race you whatever like hey they didn't show up i i'm sorry i i don't want to be a jerk but it's like if you want to win you got to show up that's how this works valentino rossi raced moto gp for decades because he showed up because exactly. he was ready to race every time right so in am uh eca i finished fifth this season worse than last season but um i missed some races yeah um i missed a race to get to take the opportunity to go to japan for a work trip yeah um and uh unfortunately i had some dnfs from i had electrical issues this year is you know we've <laughs> joked about um yeah unfortunately that cost me that that really really cost me it cost me in the first race um the bike was still rideable it didn't completely die i was able to start it up again and um, 
I finished like 17th, but I stopped and talked to my wife for like five minutes and I said I was going to quit. And, um, but then I was confused on how to pull off the track actually from where I yeah. was to get to the parking lot. So I went, and I finished the lap and, uh, those points probably turned out they might've mattered. And then, yeah. uh, I thought we were going to get two drops, but a race got canceled. We only ended up getting one drop. Um, I got a DNF later on from same thing, electrical issue, bike just died though. Yeah. It sucked. Um, really hampered it. Feel like I was, uh, feel like I had a good chance to, uh, to get second in this. I wasn't going to win. Uh, the, the one dude, Brandon Bowers, he is a beast. Uh, yeah. he rightfully kicks my ass and deserves his win in D six and, uh, <laughs> ECA this year. He really, really crushed it, had a huge injury in a side-by-side accident partway through the season. And, um, you know, he was in the ICU and he came back and, uh, was able to still close it out. Lined up well where between his breaks and like a uh, break in racing, he was able to heal up enough to come back and win. And he is good. But it's... I finally found the speed where I got to battle with him. So I felt like that was good. Yeah. Like, it wasn't just getting my ass kicked. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> I got to make passes, you know. Sometimes I got the lead. So uh, I'm a little bummed because I, I think I'm getting bumped to A class. I haven't won any races in B. I keep getting seconds, which is very good. I'm, I'm quite happy. This is much better than I ever thought I would ever be when I was a kid. When I raced moto as a kid, I was a, like, mid to back of the pack guy <laughs> so uh That's, in c-class so i'm glad you covered that though it's i can't express that to another enough people lots of people find racing intimidating but if you do it you don't have to do it for very long before you meet people and you start to realize i don't mean being beat by this person because i'm being beat by this person and myself i've not put the time in they have and they deserve to win. That's that's just the way it is. It's really weird how that, that plays out very honestly, and you're not mad about it. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a whole thing. The ECA, you have to be a member of a club and whatnot. And at the end, they listed me as finishing fourth in the series and removed the guy above me. Um, wow. And I contacted him about it, both him and the ECA, because I know he's in a club. And I talked to him at the races. Like, these guys are my friends now. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, he beat me fair and square. Like he, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. like make yeah. sure you reinstate him. You know, like you said, it's, I, I finished how I finished because it's what I put into it. Yep. And some of these guys, they have it, you know, they, they put in more yep. work. I said, Brandon, he's great. Great dude. He put in the work, you know, he won. And uh, the other guys are great. You know, we battle each weekend. We talk to each other on the line, you know. Some of them I hang out with now yeah. afterwards, you know? Yep. We're good. And uh, Yeah, it's, it's family. I mean, you do it long enough, it becomes family. That's the way it is. Exactly. So, so what's, it's nice. what's on the horizon, man? Um, looking forward to, uh, to racing A-Class this year. Like, uh, that's going to be exciting to be able to say I made it to A-Class, which is... I mean, as a teenager, I didn't think it was possible. I just was yeah. hoping. My, my goal back then was to one day get a, be able to get a plaque in C-Class. <laughs> that was it. Like, I, th- I thought if I got a plaque in C-Class, I've made it. Like, that's it. Yeah. So, uh, well, I'm excited I'm, uh, for that. 
I'm drinking um, beer and you're riding the bicycle right now. So, uh, I think you're well, making the right choices. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I haven't had any races in December, so I've been, I've been pretty much chilling the last month, month and a half and, uh, got on the scale the other day and realized I, I gained 10 pounds and was like, Oh man, I thought maybe I was just a little bloated, you know, but, uh, that's <laughs> realized I better. Life. Yeah. Winter is real. Exactly. So I said, man, I, I need to start exercising. I want to put in the work to, uh, to do well. I feel like I didn't put in as much work this year. I feel like my fitness wasn't as good for racing. Um, as it was last year, I feel like, uh, I was at probably peak fitness in my life. Um, however, my skills weren't as good. Yeah. I've developed a lot of skills. I feel like I have a better mental outlook, which plays a huge impact for me. How well I do usually seems to relate very much on like stress levels in my life. I, I mean, you're an engineer full time, so, and married and it's, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I bought a house, you know, this year I bought a house with the wife here. There's just, that's part of vet racing, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it comes with the territory. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you know, maybe having the kids on the horizon now there's, uh, it's going to cut into the time. So this is, uh, just trying to enjoy it. You know, and yeah. it's great. My wife's very supportive. She goes yeah. to all the races with me. Um, you know, I talked to her about, like, I was like, ah, oh, I might as well just skip the last race. Like, I'm out of contention. Um, like, I can't win the championship now. I could skip the last race and go start the first race of a, this different winter series. And she's like, no, you got to go in there. Like, there's still <laughs> a chance. Like, you know, you don't know who's going to show up or if they crash out. Like, it's She's true. like, you got an outside shot. Like, you got to go do it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you know, she she drives me to do it. So she's good. That's she's awesome. she's there with me every race and uh, works the pit board for me. And it, it's great. You know, make it like a family thing. That's fantastic, man. So uh, quick question. Yep. How do we get you to come down to Kentucky to race? Oh, that is one. I need to fix <laughs> my pickup truck. I uh, Okay. I don't have a pickup truck right now. I tow it with the, uh, the wife CX five or uh bum bum something. But, cool. uh, I would like to make it out and do one of these Kentucky races, but I got to admit you guys, uh, seem pretty gnarly. They don't, <laughs> it doesn't look enjoyable to me. You guys have uh, clay. I don't, I do not like clay. Just cannot ride in it. Wet clay. Truth be, truth be told <laughs> this year was actually better. This season was better than last season's. The first race was a rough one, but the rest were actually pretty good. Um, I'll throw this out to you because you like this stuff. I think they're going to do a seven hour race again next season. So as soon as they announce the schedule, mark your calendar and hopefully that doesn't compete. That'd be a great time to come out. Get to spend the whole day. You can bring some of your friends with you and you guys can bring a team, uh, race seven hours. You'll get a chance to race at my favorite track in clay city. If they do that again, um, you really get your fill and do it, do it all in one trip. Yeah. I gotta say your, uh, KXCR. Is, is that did I said right? K- yep. KR Dex Yeah, Kentucky Cross Country Racing. Yeah, K yeah KXCR. Uh, dude, they they seem great. They seem very progressive. Good ideas and stuff. You know, I did get to meet them at one of the national enduros. Yeah, and uh, they were cool. So I, I like their ideas and kind of forward thinking to it. Make it a little more exciting. Some of their thoughts on it. 
I'm I'm working on some stuff in the hopper for next year. We don't know if it'll pan out yet, but uh, hopefully I'm having exciting news in the spring. So where can people find you if they want to hear more about Ryan Wheatley? Uh, on Instagram at one wheel Wheatley. That is pretty much my only social media though. Okay. Uh, I'm uh, not, not really much plugged into it anymore. Yeah. So you can find me on Facebook, but, uh, admittedly I only use it because, uh, got on there because that's the only way you can find out about race series anymore. It's Everybody true. posts the info on there. Yeah. Um, I actually had to get it when I wanted to learn about, uh, these adventure rides. I had yeah. no idea how I was ever going to know about that when I started riding. I had no idea about dual sports or anything. So I overheard it from somebody. And then once I went to one, you know, people tell me, oh, dude, you just got to join this Facebook group and you find it on here. And then suddenly I found out there was riding and racing everywhere near me. And I had never had any idea about it growing up. <laughs> Solid advice there. Anything so, else you want to leave the listeners with? Uh, you know what? If you're into off-road riding or dual sporting, adventure riding you should look into joining one of your uh local clubs they uh you know there's many of them that have different outlooks and are run different ways but uh in general they're trying to keep this sport alive and uh really help out at a local level so uh i encourage everyone to get involved and uh put in work to uh keep these trails open for everyone and uh keep these events running so uh shout out to delaware valley trail riders that's uh my club they've been working real hard uh since they formed a few years back and uh just trying to put on a lot of good events and get back to the community yeah absolutely i'll uh i gotta look up a link and i'll put that in the description so and with that we'll catch the listeners down the road